Hi, and welcome to the Inspiring Science Teachers podcast. My name is Chris Stoker, and on this show, we love to interview teachers and pick their brains for some of the great lessons and strategies they've developed for teaching science. For this episode, Becky and I interviewed Emily Sarah, a teacher at Post Falls High School in Northern Idaho. Emily shared the power of using phenomena in her classroom and then illustrated it by sharing one of her lessons that involved swans washing up daddy chair on Lake Coeur d'Alene. It sucked us right into her lesson. Overall, Emily's thoughts were practical and yet insightful and centered around helping students find and follow their own passions. Last month, she received the Dr. Becca Wills Outstanding Educator Award in Idaho. You're going to enjoy this, so let's jump in. All right, Emily, thank you for being with us. We're excited for this. Uh, Why don't you start off by introducing yourself and telling us kind of a little bit about your background? Um, Sure. So my name is Emily Sarah. Um, I am currently a high school science teacher at Post Falls High School. Um, I'm kind of newer to education. I kind of went back to grad school in my 30s to do this. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I still feel like a newbie. Um, Let me see. I was a massage therapist before this. So a little bit of a switch there. Um, I think, let me see. And in my, what is that? I think I'm in year 13. Um, I've taught everything from like, I think I've taught almost all the life, physical and earth sciences, a lot of crazy electives, um, forensics, microbiology. Um, I think my passion is anatomy and physiology and biology. But right now I'm mostly a chemistry teacher. So who knows? Okay. I was going to ask you what your favorite was, but you've already mm-hmm. answered that for us. What? How big is your school? About 1,700, 1,800 students. Okay. So not good size, yeah. Good size, but not huge, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, partly why we wanted to do this interview is that you were awarded the Dr. Becca Wills Outstanding Educator um, for for secondary. Um, congratulations on that. Thank you. Very awesome um, and well deserved, as you know, for my interaction with you, for sure, well deserved. Um, tell us a little bit about like how you felt when you got that or Tell us about it. <laughs> Mostly shocked. Um, I think, I mean, I knew the people on the board of the ISTA, even though I wasn't currently a board member. So I almost emailed them back and said, this is a joke, right? Because um, <laughs> I never won anything before. Um, so no, that I just felt like it was an amazing honor. That was really excited to be recognized. So You get, awesome. uh, what, $1,000 to spend on stuff? Yep. Um, I'm planning on spending about half of it in my classroom because um, I was given a new class this year with, you know, no extra budget or anything. They wanted to create a class for high school juniors who like academically struggle, who are traditionally on IEPs. And I really wanted to make it really uh, kind of applicable to their everyday lives and relevant, which I think we try to do in every science class. But these are kids are probably not going to college and I need to figure out, like, how is science relevant to them in their everyday lives? So I'm going to use a lot of money to build that class. Um, and if there's any left over, I'm thinking about going to the um, Denver NSTA conference, spending it on that. So. Ooh, very awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, as I yeah, talked about like in fun. the last um, episode, uh, we interviewed the the other recipient of that award, and this uh, award is is made by a generous donation from uh, someone who was inspired by uh, Dr. Becca Wills, um, and that really kind of led to him wanting to pay it forward by 
recognizing other teachers who are doing awesome things. So once again, congrats on that. So um, you mentioned that you were in massage therapy before you were a teacher. Did you always want to be a teacher? You just didn't have a chance to go do that? Or did something happen that changed your inspiration in your course? I um, actually, I thought I was going to go into maybe something like physical therapy or occupational therapy when I was in college because I found out I loved anatomy so much. Um, Went to massage school because it was less expensive. And I thought, okay, I'll work for a few years and then go back. I love doing massage work and I mostly did work in physical therapy or like chiropractic clinics. Um, rehab work was so much fun. Um, but physical therapy is really, really uh, labor intensive. I had arthritis by the end of like about 15 years, I had arthritis in my hands and my thumbs. And frankly, I needed a job that had health insurance. <laughs> so I think I could joke at like, oh, yeah, well, I only got into teaching for the benefits. But honestly, I spent a year doing volunteer work um, like I, I volunteered at a science museum working with kids. I volunteered at a high school. I volunteered at elementary school. I wanted to make sure I found something that I really enjoyed. Um, yeah. So research well, me before I just jumped into it, I think. Yeah, that's that's good. Um, it still makes me wonder, though, like anatomy and physiology, you could have gone and done so many different things. What about working with kids really drew you? <laughs> I think because it's different every day. Um, I think, I don't know. I was actually, I guess in college, I was a psych major for two years. And I feel like being a teacher is really half being a psychologist. Like you have to figure out how their little brains work to figure out how to get them to enjoy science um, sometimes. And so, yeah, it's, I think it's, I mean, it, they always say teachings about the relationships. That's fun for me. So, yeah. Agreed. I feel like we could market that line like teachers have to do, you know, psych analysis on their students. You know, that's something that's kind of cool to say, but also like there's a lot of that that rings true, you know, too. Everything you read about brain science, I, you know, all I think is how can I apply this to my classroom? Yeah, for sure. It's good stuff, too. Well, why don't you walk us through one of your favorite lessons? I know this is always one of the things I love asking teachers about. So, you know, whatever way you want to take this with lessons or units or however you kind of thought about it, go ahead and walk us through that. I know I had a hard time when you gave me these questions because I can think of like my favorite things to teach, like my favorite subjects. Like I love teaching genetics. I love teaching um, in a and I love teaching the brain and the senses. I actually teach a neurology class in the summer at John Hopkins, not the actual John Hopkins. I'm not like a med school teacher. Oh my gosh, that sounded fancy. I'm not. <laughs> it's <laughs> us kids, <laughs> but it's like a camp through John Hopkins, like brilliant children. But anyway, um, so I can think about all of those things or like a unit in my chemistry class currently. But okay, what I decided to talk about was the one that's my, the one I think I'm the most proud of. Um, and that's basically like any unit where the students are doing the figuring out and I'm not actually doing the teaching, I think. And so the one I'm most proud of is one, I think it was the first like storyline or super phenomena based unit that I created entirely myself. And it was all based on this phenomena of, um, there's this one spot in Lake Coeur d'Alene, like up where I live, not even on the whole lake, but just this one spot on the lake where about 300 swans wash up a year dead. And so I explored into that and realized this would be an amazing science unit and you can take it in a bunch of different directions. And so I created a short, it's like a two week inquiry unit for my students about that. And I loved it because 
all we did the first day was talking about the dead swans. And I mean, they're not washing up on any part of the lake. They're not washing up on any other nearby lakes. We have a lot of lakes up here. Why is, what is it about this one spot? And I let my students ask the questions. And all I did to plan this unit was just think of like, okay, to be able to figure this out, they're gonna have to know this. And they can do this to figure it out. We can do this lab to figure this out. We can do this lab to figure this out. Um, and I went into this unit for the first time not being planned day by day. That makes me so anxious, but, would I, but I let it go. And I let my students ask the questions and I let my students pick like, we want this question answered first. And I knew what activity they would have to do to be able to answer that question. And we went with like every time, I've taught this unit, I think three or four times now, every time it's completely different. And I'm so proud of myself for that, I think. Yeah. Wow. But that's on student questions. Okay, we have to dig into this a little bit. Like talk talk to us about where they where have they kind of gone with this? Like what science have they uncovered about these um these swans? Well, the first thing they always want to do is dissect a swan and I have to talk them out of that. <laughs> so so I'm still guiding them, I guess. Um, they want to, and they also want to take a field trip and we don't always have the budget for that, but I say, I will go scoop up stuff and I will drive to that part of the lake, scoop up the water. Um, and I, because I know why the swans die, I know I have to scoop up the muck underneath it. Um, but we learn the ecology of the system. Um, they, uh, yeah, we have to learn about the ecology and the food webs and all that stuff. We, they want to do water quality testing um, pretty soon. So actually, and the swans die from lead poisoning. So pretty quick, they figure out what's killing the swans, but then they have to figure out where is this lead coming from, which leads to this whole, like, we talk about like aquifers and the aquifer up here is incredibly clean. So why, you know, what's poisoning our aquifer? Um, right. We look at a lot of maps and yeah. And what age is that? High school biology? This, this is high school. Um, this was for a class called Natural Resource Management that I put it together. And I'm not teaching it this year, um, but the chemistry teacher is going to take this phenomena and I think use it to teach uh, double replacement reactions or because there's a chemical yeah. reaction. If it happens like that's awesome. I have one other little question. Did you know the answer before you started? I. Another science, another teacher told me, it was actually an elementary teacher who told me about this. Um, I had to look it up. So you were so, definitely not an expert. You were going way out of your comfort zone yeah, and letting I'm kids just explore. I'm Googling the water quality people at the local college up here. Like I was trying to figure out exactly, I guess, exactly what my students needed to know and then how I could build activities for that. This one took me most of the summer to build. Yeah. So one little last follow-up question on this how do you think it changed your attitude your energy your emotional involvement um teaching in a way that put the kids in that much charge hmm i think i was excited to see oh my gosh i'm trying to think i was excited to see where they were going to take it next I mean, I still, like I said, I still had to do some guiding. I still had to talk them out of dissecting a swan. Like, like there's no way we're doing this. Um, there were times when they would go off on a tangent and I would kind of have to steer them back. But I think there was never a time where they didn't think they were in charge. <laughs> and I think that that was really important. And maybe not for my energy levels, but for their energy levels. They came in excited to figure this out. Like, where is this lead coming from? Why are we not being poisoned by it? Are we going to be poisoned by it? Um, yeah, that just sounds really fun. I'm already engaged. I want to go study the swans, too. <laughs> we'll be Googling this right after this interview uh, 
for sure. So <laughs> there's some newspaper articles about it now. It might actually not be as great a phenomenon. I think they could think they could find the answer quicker now online. Yeah. But and so you said the students were excited. Did they also kind of get like passionate about trying to do something to stop it or that was going to be their final project, which I told them from the very beginning. I said, you know, you're not going to be by the end, once they find out the answer, um, they know that there are like other areas besides Coeur d'Alene that are cleaning this, cleaning the lead out of places. But Coeur d'Alene hasn't started yet. We actually got into some local really good discussions about local politics with that. So that was their final project. Um, I told them, like, you're not going to solve the problem. There is a way to clean this up once we learned about the politics of this. Um, but they had to create a t design, create something that could be a possible temporary solution and figure out, like, how I gave them a budget. Like, if the city is going to give you this much money, what could you design that would be a temporary solution until government steps in and actually does some big things? So. Nice. That's really cool. Are there in in a more general sense, right, because this is kind of committing all in on one project, but are there sort of day to day tricks, um, activities or strategies that you find that work really well for anything, building culture or just getting kids into the science a little bit more? What are your smaller, easier to reach tips? Oh, um, my smaller, easy to honestly just switching to phenomena based teaching was huge for me. Um, I don't know if that's a small, easy trick, though, because finding the right phenomena is so hard. That's a lot of work ahead of time. But I feel like once you do it, your units just flow. And again, designing activities where the kids are figuring it out and I'm not telling them the answers, which I, I feel like teachers talk about this all the time. We, we try to switch to this and it's hard because the kids are so used to being told, you know, like this is A, this is B, this is C. And then when I don't tell them and I make them figure it out, they get so frustrated and I tell them I love it because that's their brains growing and they still hate me. <laughs> but you're right, right? You're letting them sort of have that productive struggle. You know, I'm like, hear that anger in your voice? That's your, those are your neurons. <laughs> exactly. They're like, just tell me the answer. Day-to-day -day tricks. Um, still How about if we shift that to be like, if they're trying to make this huge change, this is really hard. What's a little thing that they could start with? Is there a way to sort of dip their toe into the engagement? I think the quickest, easiest trick you can do um, while you're still figuring out phenomena and how that works in is to do the lab first. Because I feel like for so many years, we all taught, um, you know, here's the information, here's the class notes is what I always called them. And then we do the lab which just confirms what they've already learned. I have been shocked by when I put the lab first, my students will have figured out half of the science. And then I, I do some correcting misconceptions at the end. We do some vocabulary at the end and, and then we're good. Yeah, that's a really good tip. It's like telling somebody the movie plot before they go see it. Why bother, right? So let yeah. them play. That's yeah. great. I know you've done a, a fair amount of uh, science coaching, um, you know, in the state. So what, Emily, what have you learned from being a science coach, maybe about science education or about strategies or helping teachers shift or how, what have you learned in general? I've learned, I think, kind of going back to Becky's last question, there's a lot of small shifts that we can make. Um, and when we talk about just doing one of those at a time, um, that's incredibly important. 
Um, I found from being a coach that modeling is so important. The more I was out in classrooms, modeling, like I could give, this is probably more with elementary teachers, but um, when I would model a lesson, they would just look at me afterwards and go, oh my gosh, I could do that. Um, So that was amazing. Um, And then personally, like how important a teaching community is, I started coaching right in like, 2020 so right as COVID was hitting and all of a sudden we were I was like not allowed in schools and and when you switch to coaching you lose kind of that uh, day-to-day camaraderie with your teachers who are like your next door neighbors right Um, you guys probably have both felt that you know and you're still friends with them but you're not with them every single day anymore and so just figuring out how to build connections um with people I don't like, I'm just meeting for the first time, how to build that, especially through that pandemic pandemic with like, how do I build this in online spaces? Uh, those were all huge lessons I had to learn how to create PD in an online space. Those were, those were huge shifts for me to make, how to make this fun, how to like still connect with people when we're not face to face anymore. Yeah. Um, and then because when I'm coaching, I think I spent most of my time with elementary teachers and I have only ever taught high school I was, I was so, like, so impressed by elementary teachers. They are so amazing at what they do. I can't tell you the amount of, like, management, just daily small management skills that I learned from elementary teachers that still work in 11th and 12th grade. How much I learned from them. (laughs) That's awesome. And you're, you're helping facilitate um, an online PD right now, right? Yep. Yeah, the ISTA, the Idaho Science Teaching Association. Um, we're running a book study right now about the cross-cutting concepts. So running that with a few other teachers, that's been fun. We've had great conversations. Yeah, we'll have to follow up maybe on another interview and ask more about cross-cutting concepts. I think those are the probably trickiest of the three dimensions, the one that's least comfortable. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, give us a little uh, nugget from some some of the conversation in that book study. Like what what are some of the ahas people are kind of realizing so far? I know it's just kind of getting going last couple months, but. Um, I think that they are actually, the CCCs are actually in everything and it's hard to teach a lesson where you don't talk or reference the CCC in some way. So what we're really focusing on this book study is how do we make this more explicit? Um, how do we teach our kids to, you know, think about systems um, in a more explicit way than just talking about like in my chemistry class, like, oh, what's happening in the flask? But like actually using that language, how do we, how do we teach that? Um, right now we're still kind of in this like brainstorming way. And I mean, obviously this is a book study. We're all contributing. We're not we're not saying like this is the best way to do it. Everyone's coming right. up with ways and and sharing them. And yeah. Well, I kind of love those conversational learn from each other PDs. I think that's really valuable um, stuff. But let's let's just say someone's listening and they're like cross cutting what they they maybe this is new to them. Um, what, how would you kind of summarize that, what it is? Um, so the cross-cutting concepts are, they're thinking tools that stretch across all the disciplines. So it doesn't matter if you're teaching life or um, physical or earth-space science. It doesn't matter. Um, every type of scientist out there is going to have to learn how, like, how to recognize patterns in data. And kindergartners have to learn how to do this. And, you know, college kids are still doing this. And real scientists do this. So um, they're, they're the ways we think about science. And so our job as teachers is to teach kids 
how to think like real scientists do. And so these are just kind of the seven like ways we're kind of focusing in on this. Beautiful. Thank you. A little bit of a change of direction with our next question for you. Um, what would you say that people outside of the profession don't understand about teaching in general and maybe science in particular that you wish you could communicate to them? I think there's there's probably a thousand things until you actually teach for a while that you don't realize that people don't know. Um, but I'm thinking a conversation I had with a friend just this summer, um, we traveled together and she was stressing about a presentation she was going to have to give like a full two weeks after we got back from our trip. And it was going to be like a 15 minute presentation. And I was just, <laughs> you realize I only, and I'm lucky I only have two preps a day. Like I only teach two science classes a day, not period, like, you know, whatever, two preps a day. And <laughs> I'm like, I do that, you know, two times a day, five days a week. <laughs> and she was like stressing about one that she had to do. And she was like, okay, you're right. This should not be a big deal. <laughs> so um, I guess it's that like when you're teaching, you're on all the time, right? There's no downtime when you're a teacher. There's no, <laughs> I guess we have our planning periods, but between the time I'm like filling out forms for administrators or, you know, <laughs> doing other things where I don't even get to plan. Um, yeah, there's no downtime. There's no time to like sip your coffee and think about things, I guess. Yeah. Like, my friend got to, you know, she got, she got a week to plan this presentation. What a luxury. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, that's, that sounds lovely. After this interview, guys, I'm going back to school to try out some labs because I didn't have time during my plan period this week. So, yeah. well, it's kind of like you're running what five meetings a day with 25, 30 kids in each meeting. Yes, it's a good way for uh, people outside to kind of think about it. Yeah, and I think there's always, I don't know, I I know I feel it like I'm exhausted when I get off work and I just need the time to not talk to anyone. So people who have big families and stuff. I'm like, I don't even know how you guys do it. I'm exhausted. That's a challenge. Um, if you could go back and give your first year teacher self some advice, what would that sound and look like? You know, there's no good answer to this because I was given so much good advice, but did I follow it? You know, um, I, I got, I think I'm one of those people who I had to figure it out for myself. So I could hear the things and I think they sounded like cliches at first. And after a while, once you've experienced it or once you've made that mistake or just you're reflecting on your own practice and you're like, oh, that person 10 years ago was right. Now I get it. Like this is still happening to me this week, probably. <laughs> you know, I'm still realizing things that I'm like, oh, yes, I was warned about this. Why didn't I listen to them? Because I had to figure it out for myself. Um, I will say one piece of advice I gave a student teacher who's working next door to me right now is that you don't have to grade anything. Uh, you, I like everything. Sorry. Does that come out as anything? Again, that's <laughs> my weekend mindset. No, you have to grade some stuff. Um, but he was staying really, really late grading. And I was pointing out mm, some of it you need to consider practice. And if it accidentally goes into the recycle bin, oops. Um, I've never, never in 10 years, like had a student be like, oh, where's that assignment we did last Tuesday? Like they don't know. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's good advice because so much of it is really about the process, not the product mm -hmm. that it, it doesn't ever have to be looked at by you because it was the process of them thinking through it. Not right. for everything, but yeah, that's yeah. definitely a good time saving advice. 
Yeah. And I do appreciate there's been so many people in my life who've let me make those mistakes, especially as a coach. Oh, my gosh. Because, again, I've only ever taught high school and then I'm invited to every grade levels. There was a fourth grade teacher once I went into her classroom and I kind of ahead of time said, like, this is what I'm going to do. And she emailed me back and said, that is not going to work with fourth grade. And I said, <laughs> can I just try it anyway? Because I need to see, like, can I just feel it out? And she's like, of course. So she just let me experiment with her kids. And she was right. It did not work. <laughs> but, I, yeah, but I had to figure that out for myself and 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 figure out how to modify things. So yeah, many people make mistakes, and I make probably more than most. And I'm so grateful to the people who have let me do that. Yeah, that's well, great. I, that's how you learn. <laughs> yeah, and I I would just add for myself a similar note that like I just felt like I was really good at explaining things. And in my mind, I thought I was probably better than the average science teacher. And so, like, it would work for me when it didn't work for them. And it took, you know, by, I don't know, year five or something, I was starting to realize, hmm, these really bright kids aren't actually remembering important key concepts months after we've studied them. And I'm like, hmm, maybe, like, explaining things isn't the best way, you know, and it really kind of led me down this path to be ready now to learn some stronger instructional strategies that helped produce, like, long-term learning and change in kids' brains, you know, in their minds, and helping them develop these models of how things work rather than me just explaining it and all of that kind of stuff. I know. I got the best compliment from a kid this year, and he just after class one day, he told me, Miss Sarah, I really like your class because it's so chill. And this was right after a day where we had been like at our desks, at the lab tables with the group, like we had moved around like six times. And I was like, what do you mean chill? Like this was such an active class. And he goes, well, you know, you just let us talk. And again, I'm like, what? <laughs> like you were like, I'm walking around hearing your, like you're doing science the entire time. And it took this back and forth of his teenage lingo and my old lady brain to figure this out. But what he was saying was like, you just let us figure it out ourselves with our group. You let us collaborate. You let us. And I was like, I don't think you've realized that's the best compliment you could have given me. Like he was feeling so much stress in his other classes and he wasn't feeling stress in chemistry because he had the time to collaborate and to work it out. And I was like, that's exactly what I want. Thank you. That is a good compliment. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing compliment. It's really nice that he shared it too. So often they don't, right? All he said um, was, I like your class because it's chill. Yeah. It really took us like five minutes to tease out what the other one was saying. Yeah. What's the real compliment in that? Yeah. <laughs> Does that mean you're an easy think. teacher? You don't expect enough? Well, no. That's he was right. saying this way deeper and more important thing. That's what I thought he was saying at first. I was like, oh, well, I'll make this class harder. Okay. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, the next thing that we wanted to ask you about, actually, and maybe maybe you just shared it. I don't know. But if you could just tell us something positive, a memory that you have involving a student, it can be funny or a proud teacher moment. But sort of what's a what's a highlight? My OK, this is my proudest teacher moment. And honestly, it has nothing to do with me as a teacher. It's just me like realizing that my kids are so amazing in their own way. Um, so this was a long time ago. I had this kid, this little boy, he was a freshman. Um, and um, I, at that time, I was working at a school that kind of did cool things. The freshman, sophomore classes were looped. So I had mixed freshman, sophomores, and they had me for two years, which, you know, sometimes 
is most of the time is lovely. And sometimes you're like, oh, I wish you were gone after the first year, but whatever. Um, this kid was a freshman. It's still the first semester. I don't know him very well. Um, he joined the science club that I was running with another teacher. And we're at some after school science club event. I don't know. We were playing with chemicals or something. And um, the kids were talking about what was going to happen later on in the week, like Thursday or Friday. And he just goes, oh, we won't have school Thursday or Friday. And they just continue on with their conversation. And me and the other teacher are like, what do you mean? We're not having school Thursday or Friday. Um, and he goes, oh, um, on Wednesday night, it's going to snow six inches. And then on it's going to snow all day on Wednesday. And then Wednesday, or Thursday night, it's going to snow another eight inches or something like Like He was really specific about numbers of inches and time frames. And honestly, at that point, we like pulled out our phones and we're Googling the weather app. And we're like, no, it's not. Like It's, it's maybe going to snow two inches. This is December, probably. That kid was right. That kid was right about every time frame and about every inch. And the next Monday when we got back to school, I'm like, hey, like what? How did you know that? Because every news report is just freak snowstorm, you know. Um, he is a meteorological like nerd. Like this is his passion. He was so like he realized weather reporters were almost never right. He gets like the meteorological data and starts designing his own weather forecasts. I'm talking about this kid at department meetings. I'm ready to like give him some award for I don't know what. He set up a website, <laughs> his own predictions website as a freshman. And I would check that instead of like the Apple on my phone weather because he was so amazing. So again, I had nothing to do with that. It was just something he just kind of casually shared with me. It was it was amazing. I was like, I got that kid into so many advanced classes like this kid is going somewhere. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with me. But <laughs> that's just really cool. Like our kids are amazing people. And I just that kid's passion was science, but it wasn't a science I was teaching him. But kids have these amazing passions. And I just love like finding out about them. And some kids, kids are amazing musicians or amazing painters. And our kids are amazing people. And I just that kid's passion was science, but it wasn't a science I was teaching him. But kids have these amazing passions, and I just love, like, finding out about them. And that's part of the fun of being a teacher, I guess, just finding out what they're great at. And sometimes they yeah. don't know. Finding their little passions and sometimes being inspired by them. Yeah. Hope my, oh, I don't know. I'm trying to think. That kid, he should be out of college by now. He's probably working for NASA. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've reached the end here, Emily. This has really been fun. Um, but is there anything else you want to tell teachers? I feel like I should come up with like the, the giant like concluding statement right here. This is the yes, only one. I this is a good spot for it. I know. I don't have it. Just to let the little stuff go, I feel like. I feel like that's still a lesson I'm learning every day. I don't know. I think some of my success as a teacher is that I don't um, – I don't ever feel like what I'm doing is as good as it's going to get. And there's a lot of disciplines like that, right? Like I'm sure artists feel the same way. I'm sure um, I know people who practice like sports probably feel the same way. Um, and so always looking for new ways to grow. Um, I feel like there's a point where some of us kind of stop that process. And I think that's when your classes get kind of stagnant and your passion doesn't come through anymore. So Always learning and growing. Well, what do you do if you're a teacher and you maybe have kind of hit that point where you're not as passionate about like improving every year and doing better for the next batch that comes through, you know, kind of thing? Like, 
what do you do to like get that back? Or maybe you never really had a strong push for that in the beginning. Like, what do you do to kindle it? Like what, give us some tips here. I don't know if I've ever hit it that point, which is nice for me. And I, part of it is that again, I'm still kind of a young teacher. I'm still young into my career. Um, and also honestly, it was probably a good thing that I got pulled to be a coach and then went back to the classroom. So I haven't hit that burnout point yet. Um, But for teachers that I know have hit it, um, I think I just always try to share like what cool things my students have done, what phenomena we're talking about right now and how excited the students are. Again, I think it's that modeling thing. If we can model for other teachers. Well, that's great. I mean, I I love the things that you've talked about and I I feel like there's um, a real pragmatic side to what you've shared like I feel like you're not this philosophical you know ed theory this is like this is what I've seen works for me and this is what I've seen helps other teachers as they're trying to shift and get better at things and so I just I feel like it's been real practical good that's well that's always kind of important to me I do you ever go to those PD sessions and they're so vague (laughs) that you don't feel like I feel like every PD teacher says, oh, I want you to come away with this with something you can use in your classroom tomorrow. And then they talk really, really vague because they're trying to teach to different to people who teach different age levels and different subjects and nothing sticks in your brain then. So hopefully, I don't know, just when we share our tips and tricks and things like that. I mean, what works for me isn't going to work in every classroom, but pieces right. of a bill or, you know, something new to think about. Yeah, well, Emily, you definitely gave me some good things to put in my pocket and take with me for tomorrow and some great things to think about and some swans to research. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thanks, Emily. Thank you. Thanks.